We get to study 2 Corinthians 4 through 5 together this morning. So why don't you go ahead and start turning there now. I'm grateful uh, for this sermon series on our statement of faith. It's been enriching, hasn't it? Jared has gone deep into the bullpen, uh, as evidenced by the fact that he's having me preach. Uh, and I'm grateful for that too because it's had this effect on me that this is not just one person's truth. This is our truth that we're all taking our stand on. Uh, and it's, uh, we end that series today by looking at the doctrine of the last things. I've entitled my sermon today, So We Don't Lose Heart. So if you're with me in 2 Corinthians 4, let's uh, start in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, Eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. And we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. May God bless the preaching of his word today. These words and these pages are meant to give hope to those who are feeling beaten down 
under the burdens of this world, who are experiencing affliction, but it does not feel light, and it does not feel momentary. Tribulations were the backdrop in which Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. And in varying proportions, it's our life too, filled with tribulation. We've trusted in Christ, we're secure in His hands, but we wait His appearing in the consummation of all of our hopes. And so we live as strangers in the midst of a dark and dreary land. We live in the gap with a glorious hope, but intimidating current challenges. We are not at home, and we long for Christ's return. But what we learn today is that that future glory Paul speaks of needs to function for us now. It needs to inspire in us a depth of courage. I recently watched a movie called Tenet, and I walked away extremely confused because not only do they time travel, but they time travel forwards and backwards. My head was left completely dizzy, and Missy and I spent the next couple days trying to figure out what happened. You know why, though? Partially because the movie was complicated, but also partially because we're trained as humans to live in the present, to just focus on the next day. It's hard for me to plan a month out. But as Christians, it's fundamental that we are sort of like time travelers, constantly looking to the future, constantly looking at the grace that will envelop us for the rest of our days, so that no matter what, we can have courage now. Verse 16 of chapter 4 said, so we don't lose heart. That's God's message for us today. Some are in a place of losing heart, ready to give up. And God's calling you to rely on Him and find courage anew. Particularly later, as we look not to the things that are seen now, but to the things that are unseen. For the things seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. And if we're honest, we need courage to face this world. In just this last year, we've faced hospitalizations. We have faced death. In recent years, we've lost young fathers and mothers and key church leaders. We're always in danger of losing heart. So we need to place our eyes today together on this future grace where God calls us be of good courage because of our glorious future. And as we examine that courage, it's not just courage in the abstract. It's courage for you who feel like your life is meaningless right now. It's courage for those of you who have recently emerged from a marriage that is self-destructive. Real courage for real questions and real trials. In particular, let's consider the courage as Christians we can have in the face of death, in the face of Jesus, and in the face of eternity. That'll be our three points today. So first, we can live with courage in the face of death. In chapter 4, verse 8, Paul said that we are afflicted in every way and goes through a whole list of those afflictions. And then later he says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. 
for Paul, the gospel that had saved him so deeply connected him to Jesus that his suffering and persecution he was experiencing was actually a part of experiencing the death of Christ in his life. Suffering was a part of taking him deeper into his relationship with Jesus and giving Christ glory through his life. And so he was able to rejoice even in the midst of horrors. Listen how our statement of faith tells us the gospel inspires joyful courage. The gospel enables us to rejoice in the midst of our tribulations, assuring that his purposes are working for our good, even in circumstances we do not understand. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, we endure in faith and abound in hope, confident that the day is fast approaching when sin and sorrow will be no more. In our gospel, there is hope for tribulations, hope that there's meaning in them, hope that all is working for our good despite our limited understanding, and hope that knows there's an end to this affliction. And this hope is not just for those who have made it in our culture, or those who have the American dream. This is the hope for the struggling. This is hope for the people that feel lonely, forgotten, minuscule, wheelchair-bound. Our glorious God has given us a gospel that fuels passion and unleashes courage in weak and fragile people. And But our hope and courage extend beyond suffering to even death itself. Let's look in verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that's the death, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And here Paul's speaking of our bodies like they're tents, because they're temporary. So what do we do when we receive a horrible diagnosis? We remember that this body is but a tent, that even if our bodies are destroyed, this is not the end of our hope. Our hope is for a future reality beyond this world, beyond this body. And this enables us to be frank about death, to not try to push it aside or deny it, but to boldly say death is an undeniable reality. Our statement of faith says, death entered God's good creation as a result of Adam's sin, and now all people are subject to God's curse of death. But our response to this comprehensive reality of death is courage. Yet believers have no need to fear, our statement of faith continues, because Christ has conquered death and delivered us from its dominion. Although our bodies return to dust for a time, death for the Christian has become a doorway to paradise. I love that where our souls enter immediately into God's presence to behold and enjoy our Savior and to rest from our labors. So we don't lose heart. So we're of good courage. Death is not the end. Death is not oblivion. Death is entrance into the presence of Jesus. And that's why our passage can say we are always of good courage, in the good and the bad, in life and in death. We are always of good courage. 
And when we die, we know that our souls will immediately experience the joy of being in His presence. And though our bodies will remain in the ground until He comes again, our souls will be with Him immediately. We will not be asleep just to wake up when He returns. We will be worshiping Him. We will be begging Him to bring the new heavens and the new earth, but we will be delighting in Him, free from pain, free from sorrow, and free from sin. Hallelujah. And church, this means that precious saints like Paul Dooley, Rosella Washington, David Sachs, Chris Rodano, Barbara Hyatt, and the many more who have gone before us. We miss them so much, but we know where they are. They are with Christ in glory. Amen? So we don't lose heart. Even as that list grows, we don't lose heart because death is but the gateway to Christ. Friends, all who trust in Christ will immediately be taken to His presence. We will, like the criminal on the cross, experience Jesus' words, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's hope for the sinner, for the broken, for those who are trusting in Jesus. And so, friends, we can live boldly. We can take risks for Christ. We can live as those who actually don't fear death. I'm not saying be reckless or careless or unwise, but I am saying that Jesus has given you the courage for the calling he's given you. I'm telling you that you can keep trusting in him when your friends pass away. I'm telling you that you can go on church plants when you've spent 28 years like my parents building a church because you're not afraid of death or anything this life can throw at you. I'm telling you, you could become a missionary and go to a country that's hostile to the gospel, like in Thailand, Turkey, and Nepal, like our mission partners in Sovereign Grace are doing right now, because the gospel gives you that kind of courage. You can adopt children when you feel stressed and overwhelmed with your own kids, because the gospel gives you courage now. So we don't lose heart, and we press on in courage, amen? We can live in the face of death with courage, and we can live with courage in the face of Jesus himself. That's our next point. Our passage concluded with a reference to sober judgment. In verse 9 of chapter 5, it said, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now Jesus, in his earthly mission, he came to seek and save the lost, he came as the long-awaited Messiah to spread the light of salvation to the ends of the earth. But in many of those prophecies about the Messiah, judgment was also pronounced. But God, in His long-suffering, patient mercy, sent Jesus first to save, to justify, and to not judge. And He lived in our place, and He died the death for all who would trust in him. And he rose, giving victory over death to all who would believe. And then he ascended on high, and he's right now being worshipped in the presence of the angels and his Father. 
But he will come again, friends. And that is an invigorating hope for the Christian, but it's also the most terrifying fear for those who have rejected him. All will appear before his face, before the judgment seat of Christ. You see, Jesus wasn't just a good teacher or just an example of someone laying down his life in love for someone he loved. He offers exclusive salvation, the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only hope, and He will come again to judge. So there's an urgency to our lives right now. Christ is coming, and He can come at any moment to judge the living and the dead. And so our statement of faith says, at the appointed time known only to God, Jesus Christ will return to the earth in power and glory as judge and king to whom every knee will bow. His return, friends, will be sudden, visible, physical, and personal. He will return when no one's expecting it in utter glory. And when he returns, every knee will bow at the face of the glorious Christ. Will you have courage to face him? Listen, in this room, our collective guilt, if we really understood it, would crush us. We don't even know our full capacity for sin. But there's sometimes in human history where we get these examples where we, we, we realize just how much we're capable of. I've been reading about one of those times lately. It's a book on eugenics. Eugenics was a scientific movement in the mid, uh, early uh, 1900s to the mid-1900s where scientists sought to selectively breed an a advanced and a, a superhuman race. They selectively decided which type of humans were the good ones and which ones were the bad ones. And they sought to eliminate all the ones they thought were bad through forced sterilization and worse measures. And this led to the targeting and the search and the hunt for the weak and for the racial minorities. It's tragic to read about. It's overt sin. And as I'm talking about it, you probably are thinking about Hitler's Germany. Uh, and, and rightly so, because that was the worst form that it took. But the sin of eugenics was actually way closer to home for us here than we often think. I read of one particular scientist named Dr. Edwin Katzenellenbogen, and he was a Polish man uh, from Jewish ancestry. So he was captured and sent to the, the Buchenwald concentration camp. But because he was a doctor with really great skill, he became the camp's doctor while under arrest. And he was given a lot of power in this position where he could decide who was treated and who wasn't. And he systematically denied any treatment to people who were disabled, even though he actually was nearly blind himself. And he only treated those who were of Nordic ancestry. He nursed many of those people back from near death with extraordinary skill and allowed masses of other people to die because of his sinful and racist prejudice. He's accused of murdering by lethal injection over a thousand prisoners. And that can feel far out there. That's not me. I'm not capable of that. 
But do you know where he learned those prejudices? It was while he was living in New Jersey, serving under the then governor and soon-to-be President Woodrow Wilson as a leading scientist. There was a scientific movement in our own nation that embraced those principles. And it was there that he was taught them that then led to the further realities he lived out and became a murderer under. And these were approved and applauded by many of the most elite, wealthy, and even some of the religious at that time. You see, the point is, sinners are not just way out there, a few monsters, while the rest of us are all generally good. There's not just a couple Hitlers and Stalins. Sin is in all of us. We are all sinners, and it's only by the grace of God that we aren't as bad as we could be. Even the most moral person you know has this kind of capacity in their heart. And if we're honest, I know this. We know this. We know the rotten face behind the mask that we show each other. We know the hidden thoughts and the acts that reveal our true sinfulness. But here is the good news. Even the Katzenillenbogens could have hope. And you can too. You see, there's some of you here today and some of you watching, you think you're just too bad for Jesus. But Christ's offer of salvation is to every sinner, anyone who will cry out to Him. He's offering this kind of courage now in the presence of tribulations and suffering. He's offering the kind of courage that can face something as terrifying as the second coming of Jesus. Jesus will bear the guilt of any sinner who trusts in him, from the serial murderer to the rebellious child. Katzenellenbogen stood trial for his crimes at Dachau, where unbelievably he claimed complete innocence. But now he knows of his crushing guilt. The time for repentance for him is over. The only way, friends, for you to disqualify yourself from this offer of salvation is by refusing to admit your sinfulness, to blame others as monsters and not acknowledge the monster inside. So if you've not placed your hope in Jesus, I'm pleading with you. Repent and find the courage that comes in salvation. All you need to do is turn to Christ in desperation Trust that He can save you from your sin, and He will die in your place no matter what you've done, and bear all of your guilt, abolishing it as far as the east is from the west, giving you forgiveness, and rising with victory over the death that you deserve. So submit your life to Him. And the future goodness that inspires the courage that can face judgment also includes even more glory. God tells us that he will give us new resurrection bodies in addition. In verse 4, he said, For while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we be unclothed, but that we be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. This text says our hope is not that we will merely escape our bodies in death, but that there's a heavenly dwelling coming, a new body freed from the effects of the fall. So when Christ returns, he will not only judge, but all those who trust him, he will give them new resurrection bodies. 
That's why our statement of faith declares this truth when it says, when the dead in Christ are raised, their perishable bodies will be redeemed and made like Christ's imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body. And those who are alive shall likewise be changed, and thus will all God's glorified people forever bear the image of their Savior. So your future, if you trust in Jesus, is not loneliness or failure or endless suffering. So we don't lose heart. In the face of things like diabetes, chronic diseases, or even cancer, we don't lose heart. Mentally, spiritually, physically, Christ will make us completely whole. That's our future. And all of you will be made like him in his likeness, with bodies just like his body, with that kind of glory. And we will behold him and become like him, and all this will result in a happiness and a bliss that will envelop us and blow us away so we don't lose we can have courage, friends. Do you feel it? We can have courage. No matter what we're facing, this truth gives us the fuel we need to fight. Finally, we can live with courage in the face of eternity. Eternity is an amazing and terrifying thing. Our minds can't understand something that doesn't end. But far scarier than that is the prospect of an eternity of wrath, an unending experience of torment as those who don't trust in Jesus experience the righteous anger of God forever. That's a really hard truth. It's not going to make me popular saying it, but it's a necessary one because it's really important that in our statement of faith, we're submitting ourselves to God's Word, right? And God's Word clearly tells us that those who reject Jesus do not become annihilated when they die, but will experience conscience punishment forever for their sins. Our statement of faith says, the souls of the unredeemed, however, are cast immediately into Hades to experience torment as they await final judgment of their sins. And on the last day, all people will appear before Christ who is the judge of all. Those who suppressed God's truth in unrighteousness and did not obey the gospel of Christ will suffer the righteous wrath of God and be justly cast into the hell of fire with the devil and his angels. And then they will experience eternal conscious punishment according to their sins. None will stand against the Lord. All will fall before him as he rules the nations with a rod of iron. And all who do not trust in him will be raised from the dead only to live forever in hell, eternally suffering in proportion to their sins. And friends, this is why we need to be earnest in sharing the gospel with our neighbors. This is why we need to be earnest about taking the message of salvation to the ends of the earth in missions. Our passage says in verse 18, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's the coming realities that are permanent. And what we experience now is but for a moment. The joy of the bucket list trip, the romance of newlyweds, even the birth of a child, 
all is passing joy. That rush of sensuality, though intense, it's quickly replaced with self-loathing. It doesn't deliver and satisfy us forever. Because life is a vapor, but heaven and hell are forever. And God is just to punish sinners in this way. Because He created us good, in utter goodness. And we have twisted and, create, and, and twisted His creation into perversion. So we deserve this punishment. But the future for the trusting Christian is so opposite, but equally permanent. And when we think of what we could have had in hell forever, it makes us even more aware of how glorious it is to have a different future. This is your future for those of you trusting. Those saved by Christ, whose names are written in the book of life, will be welcomed into the joy of their master and richly rewarded for every good work done in his name. God's glorified people will inherit the kingdom from which all sin, sorrow, suffering, and death will be banished. Christ as king will set all of creation free from its bondage to corruption, making new the heavens and the earth and establishing his eternal rule in his consummated kingdom. How utterly opposite and how glorious. Amen? So as you survey your life, you may feel like you're a failure. But do you know what Christ sees when he looks at you? He looks at your life and sees every good work, every holy attempt that you don't count. He counts. And he will be filled with delight. Right now, he's anticipating this day when he will reward you for every single good work you've done in his name. Brothers and sisters, your life is not a failure. You have eternal significance to your life. And God is working in you in powerful ways. And he will reward you. But that's not even the best part of what we just read about, is it? Jesus actually gives us access to the triune God forever. And that's the best part. You see, Jesus isn't just some wrath insurance that we pay money for to escape hell. Jesus isn't just some heaven broker who gives us access to a great eternal resort. Jesus himself is the cause, he is the means, he is the goal, and he's the end of it all. He's the glorious part. He's the most glorious part of our inheritance, and he will bring us into an exhilarating and unending experience of his love, his justice, his glory, his mercy, his beauty, his holy, holy, holy name. Amen? That's glorious. Surrounded by unimaginable beauty, we will enjoy unhindered communion with our triune God, beholding Him, serving Him, worshiping Him, and reigning with Him forever and ever. So we don't lose heart. Oh, church, as we close this series on the statement of faith, may we never lose heart. Amen? 
We have a treasure trove of truth to base our lives off of. We do not walk in darkness. Why? Because Christ has shown his light to us and God has revealed himself in his word. Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. And he's shown to us that God is one eternal, transcendent, immutable God of blinding glory who exists eternally in the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We serve a God with no rivals who created all, who rules over all, and will work all together for the good of those who trust him. This is the truth we're standing on. God has not only revealed himself, but he has also come to us, become one of us in the person of Jesus. And now Jesus has done his work that we never could do by grace alone, through faith alone, and joined us back to the God we will enjoy forever. And now we live with the power of the Spirit, participating in his work of sanctification, watching him faithfully unify and purify the church and bring about all of his good purposes to the glory of God. Now we live in this body and in the broader church body with a glorious future that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against. Now we live with a glorious and eternal future, free from death, punishment, and in eternal glory. Friends, these are the truths the apostles built that early church with, that Christ used these apostles to establish the foundation. This is what they stood on. These are the truths that those of you who planted this church, my parents being one of them, stood on and have made your whole life about. These are the truths that, by God's grace, I'm ready to die for in defense of. Amen? Are you ready to stand on this truth? This is the truth that, by God's grace, my children's children will be standing on, laying down our lives in true courage and boldness, refusing to give up heart. So rise up, church. Rise up. Let's take our stand on these truths. Let's stand with courage, even against the crashing waves of tribulation. Rise up, mothers, those of you who feel completely spent from unending time with your children. Rise up in courage for the glory of God. Rise up, men, who feel like you're just constantly assailed with waves of temptation from this world. Rise up with the courage of Christ, knowing that it will be gone. And you will be free from temptation. Rise up, you weak, sick, and aging, knowing that this light and momentary affliction is giving way to a day when you will have a new body that will never fail you. Rise up, those of you who are mourning, who have lost a loved one, knowing that you will be rejoined with all those who trust in Christ forever with your Savior. Rise up, church. Amen? Let us walk in courage clinging to the truth, filled with purpose, living for that day when our Savior will come. Amen? Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.